Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. It's a dragon, but it's but it's made out of sand. It's a it's a giant dog. It's a giant dragon sand dog. Step out of the way. I've seen this before. I know what has to be done if humanity wants to live through this day. With the existence of our species hanging in the balance, only Commander Cao can save us. Hong Kong's greatest actor, Alan Yu, returns in the biggest role of his storied career in Attack of the Giant Dragon Sand Dog. Also, introducing Cheyenne Wolf as Gale. Whoa, 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 stop the music. Everything is wrong here. You didn't even get my name right. And I'm the star of these intros. I always have been. What's going on here? We're very sorry, Ms. Wolf, but nobody cares about the American market anymore. All of the growth is in the Asian markets, and that audience really doesn't know who you are. Can I go back to my trailer now? He gets a trailer? He's a big star over there. Okay, don't get me wrong. I am all for globalism, but if we keep making stupid blockbusters like Attack of the Giant Dragon Sand Dog just so we can reel in a few hundred million more eyeballs, we're going to lose track of what made us love cinema in the first place. You know, she has a point. It would be a tragedy if movies destroy themselves in the chase for international dollars. Who will be the next Frank Capra? The next Howard Hawks? The next Hitchcock. Well, yeah, yes. I'm, I'm glad you see my point. No, I was just messing with you. Anyway, you're being replaced Monday by Tracy Wu Fastenberg. Tracy Wu Fastenberg? She's not even that funny! Let me introduce today's Oscar show. And now, Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon is his private name for how he goes to the bathroom, Colin McEnroe. Well, that is true. Um, all right, so yeah, we're going to be doing uh, an Oscar show today, and if I'm using even you know a, a verb tense that I don't usually use, we're live here from the beautiful Trinity Cine Studio on the campus of Trinity College in Hartford. I have no idea whether we're live on the air or not, or whether our, we're recording it or anything. We've had probably our we set a record for technical difficulties here today, but we're going to soldier on bravely the way they do uh, in movies. And first of all, let me tell you who's uh, here on the metaphorical stage with me. Tom Breen, a reporter for the New Haven Independent and the host of Deep Focus. A, I, I'm the only person who says it that way, uh, which is a, a terrific show about movies on WNHH Community Radio in New Haven. James Hanley, of course, is the czar of all that he beholds here, the co-founder of Trinity's Trinity College's Cine Studio, and we've never done an Oscar show without her. We never will do an Oscar show without her. Vivian Nebetta, uh, marketing director at the Stowe Center, um, who is currently pursuing Jacques Lamar's record for working for the most nonprofits in Connecticut. Um, <laughs> and you're, you're catching up on Jacques. I think I, you can I do try. It. All roads lead to, to Jacques Lamar. So uh, we're going to talk about this year's Oscars. We always do this on the uh, Friday before the Sunday of Oscar night. Um, and one of the things we've been emailing all, all week long about this, um, one of the themes that emerged for me, uh, and Vivian, I'll start with you, is that in a lot of ways, this is sort of the, a change or die year for the Oscars, a, a year in which 
not just for the Oscars, but the movie industry sort of realizing that, yes, it's been through a lot of bad publicity about race, but also maybe a sense that it's, you know, if, if the Oscar telecast is the flagship, the, 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 the biggest exhibition of what movies are, that maybe they're sending the wrong message about themselves. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely feel I, I agree with you. I think obviously they got a lot of pushback last year with the Oscar so white. Um, I think that uh, they really had to look at how they evaluate films, um, what is getting greenlit, um, who can be in movies, or who is considered or what is considered bankable. Um, because right now, I know of of all the best uh, picture contenders, the the highest grossing one is with three black women, which. Um, is exciting. So um, I also think that, you know, they really do need to think about as they grow, if you're somebody who is a millennial or younger, you might not care about the Oscars so much. So they'll give you a few films that, that might uh, be of interest to you. That's what, not what the movie's called. It's not called With Three Black Women. Yes. It's called Hidden Fences. Yes. Um, not Hidden Fences. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> that's, that's right. So, I mean, James, you know, I, I'm 62 years old, which means I am, I think, the exact average age of an Academy voter, uh, which has been kind of a problem, I think, a, a little bit, just in terms of not, once again, just not just adjusting to the notion that movies are made by people of color and star people of color, but that movies are made by young people, too. But it seems like I could be putting too much emphasis on Barry Jenkins and, and Damien Chazelle, who's like 12 or something. He's the director of, of La La 13. But they, you know, it seems as though one of the things that they tried to do, maybe to the exclusion of people like Marty, Marty Scorsese, is bring in some young talent or showcase young talent or recognize young talent. Well, I think that's true, and the place it comes from, of course, un unsurprisingly, is money. They're looking to the future, and they want to make sure that their audiences stay with them and that the flow of money continues into production. I think one of the things about Hollywood's sort of structure is that it's an enormous behemoth that takes a long time to turn around, and there's a lot of people in their later years who regard their position now as being, okay, we've worked for a lifetime in the industry and now we get to choose things and control things. And um, I think that that's might have worked 10, 20 years ago, but I think that it doesn't now for lots of reasons. And one of, one of the principal reasons is that young people are flooding into the industry for a very important technical reason, which is digital cinema that uh, in the past, anybody who wanted to get into the industry had to raise an enormous amount of money and get the approval, essentially, of these long-standing long controllers of the industry because it costs so much money to make a film. But now with digital cinema, you can make a film with much lower costs. And it's possible also through different channels of distribution to actually get the public's attention with it. And so I think that um, the behemoth of Hollywood is turning, albeit still very slowly, but it really, I think a lot of people realize it has to happen or they're just going to be irrelevant and the show, the, the Oscars show, will seem like it's completely out of touch. Um, Tom, I, I was saying to you guys in the emails that although I've been sort of depressed uh, about public life in America for obvious reasons uh, for the last few months. In an odd way, these, this is a good bunch of movies for people to see in, in terms of either giving them some new words to live by or it's an, to, to my way of thinking anyway, the Best Picture nominees are more diverse but also kind of more transformative too than typically. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that when I brought this up in our email exchange as well, but when we have Moonlight sitting at maybe the art house end of the spectrum in Best Picture and then something like Fences or Hidden Figures or even La La Land sitting more towards the mainstream end, those are, those are uh, pretty great, uh, both formally and in terms of subject matter and execution, uh, movies to deal with. So I'm very happy as a movie watcher to see this slate of movies up for consideration. But when we're talking about uh, what's maybe a kind of revolutionary or uh, subversive about this group of Oscar nominees, I, I really want to direct our attention to how there are three movies in the Best Picture category, Moonlight, Hidden Figures, and Fences, and three in Best Documentary, O.J. Made in America, I Am Not Your Negro, and 13th, that not only tell the stories of African-American people in this country, but five out of those six are also by African-American directors. And I think that when we talk about the history of black cinema in the United States, all too often the, the people with creative control um, not just the people in front of the camera, people behind the camera are almost always white. And to see the privileging and the recognition of these movies as created by people of color, uh, I think is is a very promising development because it's a recognition that stories don't just have to be told um, by people that are about the same people, but I think you lose something when you, when you for a century, exclude those people from telling stories about themselves. Yeah, I guess one of the questions that I have, and there's, Vivian, no real way to answer it, but I mean, we could see on Sunday night um, Denzel Washington winning Best Actor, Mahershala Ali winning Best Supporting Actor, Viola Davis seems to be almost a lock for Best Supporting Actress. Um, that's quite a sweep. Mm -hmm. I just wonder whether it's the Academy going, oh, they did a, a hashtag about us last year. Well, we can't let that happen. I mean, is, like, you know, is it a permanent corrective or is it kind of, I mean, there was a year, I think it was 2002, where Denzel Washington and Halle Berry uh, one in the same year, and then like nothing like that ever happened again. Yeah, um, well, I I think that um, again it does go back to uh, I think people are starting to realize. Uh, I think that there's an issue that a lot of times um, these production companies, the people who greenlight films, really underestimate their audiences and what people are wanting to see. I think because of the change in the economy and the way that movies are made, that if you're not an Iron Man, no offense, or if you're not an X-Men, or if you're not a franchise... I'm the actually way not an Iron Man, so you didn't <laughs> need to say that. But. Really? Um, I think that it changes, uh, it has changed kind of the way um, movie making and, and cinema go, but I also think that um, these studios do underestimate. They're like, who's going to want to see a movie with three black women that talk about NASA and space and um, the, that there's a constant battle to try to prove that that's not the case um, now. I think that um, because, because honestly, I believe because of social media, because of things like Twitter um, and because of things like uh, you know these campaigns, it does force studios to pay attention to their audiences. Um, I think that there are a lot of movies that have been um, that have had attention brought to them because of their lack of diversity or their or their kind of tone deafness to what a character is supposed to look like. Uh, a lot of those movies haven't done well, and I think it forces again. It makes the studios think, okay, well maybe no offense, Matt Damon, we shouldn't have put you in a movie about China, but um, I, and I think it's all for the good. I think it's still slow because who knows next year it could change. Um, I think every road is an uphill battle, and we'll just see what happens moving forward. And uh, that's all we can really do. I think Alan Yu is the main star of that particular movie you're talking about anyway, not Matt Damon. But, um, well, I mean, James, you obviously run a very different kind of film-going experience than, the, than, than what is reflected in, you know, box office guru table, tables. But 
as I'm looking at this, I'm also thinking it, it's hard to get people to go to the movies, right? They have a lot of other choices these days. And, yeah. and it, it's possible to make the case, I think, that a movie like Hidden Figures, because it attracts a natural audience, there's a lot of people who've been waiting for a movie like this to be made. They, I mean, Hidden Figures and La La Land, among the best picture nominees, are the only two things that are real commercial hits at this point. And then there's like a next tier that's Arrival and Fences, but they're much more, you know, on the bubble. But, you know, Hidden Figures might be an example of a movie that people are going to go see because nobody made that movie for them yet. Well, that's true, um, and certainly when you're programming films, you certainly have the experience of films that you think this is a great film and, wow, we'll put that on and this will be a big success and then nobody comes. Uh, it, it can be a daunting experience sometimes. It can be a really excellent film. We just showed one, the early film by Marinade, who has Tony Erdman in the Academy Award nomination. Um, uh, it was a amazing film, but almost nobody came, people didn't know it, all kinds of things were against it, but we thought it was an important film. But uh, it's interesting with Hidden Figures that Hidden Figures has benefited from a number of things. One is that its audience demographic has uh, been skewed towards women, middle-aged women, who are just coming onto the social network, and they are tweeting and, and, and they're on Facebook a lot. And this is something relatively new to the industry to discover. I mean, I don't know when it really sort of took off. But this has certainly been something that uh, one of the features of the audience of Hidden Figures, for example, is that large groups of people come together to see the film. They talk about it. They socialize around it. And so the film takes off. And for the benefit of people who run theaters and, and also the unique experience, from my point of view, of seeing a film in the dark with other people and experiencing it together, this is a film that worked like that. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a fascinating experience in itself. Now, I think that, for instance, Moonlight could do that mm -hmm. if it could get the people in the theater. And that's, you know, why didn't Moonlight do that with groups of people? I couldn't really answer that. But, you know, it's one of these things that is really difficult to predict. And the last people to really know how to do this and to market it now are the Hollywood establishment. They don't really know how to do it. And they still, they still send out the trailer order to a house in New York City of people who are perfectly technically capable of making a sales campaign in two and a half minutes on a trailer, but they may well not have seen the whole film. They get a can of 20 minutes of footage and they put together the trailer and they sell it on a basis of something they don't really know. And so the industry is still doing this. And so that's another thing that's changing. And for me, I'm hopeful that this really is the hinge point that we're really starting to see a different way that things will happen. Social media is part of it. Young people are part of it. Digital cinema, the accessibility of it. All of those things seem to me to be coming together in a good way. Now the trick for somebody, some people like us, is to get people in the theater to experience it together and not watch the latest grand epic on a four-inch screen. Well, well yeah. Oh. Oh, I think no, go. I was go. just going to say to your point about people and going to the movies, I think, uh, I, I mean, I do find that I go less, but when I go, it's more of a special experience. And I think that that's what movies have become. It's kind of gone backwards, so to speak, maybe a little bit. Um, you go because, I mean, I can watch X Men at my house and 
I don't mean to keep picking on X-Men. I've seen it. Don't judge me, guys. But um, that, you know, I did go to see Moonlight in the theaters. It was something that I felt like I wanted to support. It's also something, a story that we've never seen before. So I think people have become more selective with their cinema. So when you do go, you you want that that experience and you want to take someone with you because you know that it's going to be powerful. I Oh, can I interject as well? Vivian, several of the people in the audience are mutants, so uh, check your privilege, okay? <laughs> I, I will. I will do that. What were you going to say? I, I, building off of that, I think that uh, getting back to the quality of these movies, I think the formal quality of uh, stuff like Moonlight, La La Land, Hell or High Water kind of demand to be seen in a theater. I mean, you will not have the same response to watching Little and Juan and Moonlight learning how to swim with him cradling him and kind of baptizing him in the water if you're watching it on a 10-inch screen. And to a certain extent, that applies to just about any movie that is made to be watched on the big screen. But I think yeah, that although I think these... there are special examples of that too. I mean, if you don't see there's certain if you don't see Tree of Life on a big screen, don't bother because oh you're just going to be sitting there going, what, what what am I doing here? Right. And, and I actually think Arrival is a great example mm -hmm. of that. I mean, I, I would say there's a lot of Arrival that would be lost. But I, Tom, I want you to just hone in on something that James said. I think it's something that I've been thinking a lot about over the last 36 hours, which is I think when we say that movies are transformative, a movie is transformative, I think at least I feel like I've been getting it wrong. I think, oh, well, people are going to go see Moonlight, and they're going to realize how hard it is to be gay and black at the same time, and everything's going to change, you know, or, or something like that, you know, which is not really what happens, right? I mean, we as a society don't go to the movies and then walk back out of the movies and the whole society is different. What happens... This is the thing that James is talking about. We go to the movies, then we talk to one another. And it might be just in very small groups. It's not going to change society. It changes us at, at more the coffee house or salon level. So I think this gets at two kind of myths about the power of movies. One is that any movie or the Oscars could act as a corrective for any kind of systemic social ill. I mean, why more movies that are, you know, about black people or by black people are not necessarily are not going to eradicate racism uh, in the audiences or in the country at large. And also the myth of movies being reflective of a current political moment. Remember, movies take years to make. And so when they finally make it to the screen, they're almost never, at least in, in their intention, they were never directly commenting upon what you were experiencing in 2017, but maybe what was happening a few years ago. And the, the reason I bring that up is I think that uh, we, we were talking very briefly about uh, Mark Grice's collection Against Everything before the show started. And yeah. one of his key... Uh, tenets in his philosophy of pop is that pop and popular music, but also I think this applies to film, cannot be revolutionary. It can never be a truly effective call to action. What it does is that it stirs something within the audience that reminds them of an emotional understanding that they have already and that they want to reconnect with. And I think when you go to Moonlight, when you watch Hell or High Water and you understand the inheritance of poverty mm -hmm. and the way that violence has completely tarred for a century and a half the Southwest, when you go to Arrival and you think about the complete inability to communicate and the political consequences of that, I think that is where that personal connection happens and then that's what we bring forth. Not to go out and start a revolution, but to think about wh where was this within me and how do I bring this back up within me? Right, get a little bit smarter about stuff. Uh, all right, so I, we, I have to bring this up now because, okay, we, so we've had this really interesting conversation about how transformative movies are and what things the Academy may or may not have done in order to get itself a little sharper about this. And now 
my La La Land malaise is creeping over me, Vivian. And I just Aww. sort of feel like, you know, like all the people who really crunch the numbers and look at the trends and really try to figure this stuff out using game theory and I Ching, Dice, and God knows what else, say, well, La La Land is probably going to win Best Picture, and I might even sweep a lot of categories. And I may, I may be alone up here in feeling this way, but I sort of feel like, well... It kind of puts a pin back in the grenade somehow. I was like, what have we just been talking about if La La Land is going to win all these awards? I think La La Land's probably for some, for some people, uh, it feels, it kind of harkens back to a certain time with musicals. And um, I also think that, you know, Put it a little more safe. energy it in feels, your voice. It feels you you clearly don't like, you, you're just as bad as I am. <laughs> I, I plead the fifth. <laughs> I, I think La La Land is kind of like a Hollywood reassurance in, in mm -hmm. a way, amidst Absolutely. all of the upheaval and all of the uncertainty and all of the feeling that many of these people who've been in the industry for their entire lives, that La La Land is kind of like a reassurance that, well, the universe isn't totally tilted and that actually we can have this sort of that's entertainment kind of moment that really makes them feel that reassurance. and. It's connected in a way to um, something, Tom, you mentioned, I think, that this personal transformative effect that, you know, you, you get something from a movie, which I think is very much linked to the experience of watching in a big space in the dark. Um, that, that, that you don't know who's with you, really. You might know your friends, of course, and your relatives, but there's lots of other people in the theater you don't really know. So you're not really sure of how people are reacting. Um, and so a film like uh, even Hidden Figures, which uh, is reassuring in, it, in some ways, um, it, you don't really know. And then you have the conversation later and you have this sort of personal sense that you describe, which was a very eloquent way of putting it, I think, that I, I like to think that that's what people experience. And then you think if you extend that to La La Land and how it reassures the industry in a way that it, 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 it's like you can see where that's coming from and I'm not saying that La La Land is a bad movie I mean I actually liked no, it. You liked La La Land. I, I loved it yes but I'm trying to get to the point really of, of like there's also La, there's La La Land but there's also much more important stuff going on this year. So if, if there's any movie about movies that came out this year that I could have elevated to just national fame and stardom it would be the Coen Brothers Hail Caesar <laughs> that I, I think perfectly hits that sweet spot of movies exist between propaganda art and entertainment but somehow they manage to uh, kind of exist above them at the same time. But I think, I mean I'm not, La La Land would not be my favorite movie of the year but I do think it does something miraculous not with its characters but with its camera movement and with its use of color. And I think that the, the way that when I think about La La Land, I think about this kind of sickly artificial purplish red that that stands in substitution for a sunrise or a sunset, but it has all of the artificiality of L.A., this L.A. that these characters are aspiring to be a part of and to kind of transform themselves into. And then that, do you remember that green that just kind of hovers over the characters when they're fighting in a, at a, a key, an important dinner sequence? I mean, I don't, I don't want to discount the, just the technical ability and the way that, you know, people like Damien Chazelle can use images to convey meaning, not just through character story. I mean, musicals are in their very, like, bones, trite. It's not, that's not a problem that I have with the musical plot, but the way that I, I don't find the music particularly compelling in La La Land, that's a problem. But the use of color I found astounding well, and, that, and worthy of respect. That, I think, is also linked by this revolution in cinema, that the 
kind of cameras, the digital cameras that are in use now, and with the kind of color gamut they have, the range of color they can display, Damien Chazelle is actually somebody who's cottoned onto that. And that's why that's one of the things that probably the craft people in Hollywood just think, wow, now finally we can do this stuff that you couldn't really do so easily with film, that you could actually create this very different thing, including these swooping close-ups mm -hmm. and moving through rooms and actually creating a sort of spatial effect that is quite stunning when you're in the theater. So now it's like hashtag Oscars so green and red and blue and, <laughs> and, and yellow and lots of really cool <laughs> primary colors. I don't think they understood what Oscars so white meant last year. All right, we have to take a quick break. We're going to come back after this. That's why God made the movie. All right. Now, just to prove that we're here at Trinity Cine Studio, how about some applause from our enormous audience? <laughs> We've actually just gotten confirmation from Sean Spicer. We have 1,100 people here uh, watching this show. So it's, that's very gratifying. And it's also very gratifying. We didn't think we were on the air. We had sort of reason to believe going into the, you know, 1 o'clock hour that we were not on the air. So I'm told that we are on the air. What could be better than being on the air? We're talking about the Oscars we're some, with some of our favorite people to talk about movies with. Vivian Nebetta is the queen of our Oscar show. She's the marketing director at the Stowe Center, but we've never done an Oscar show without her, never will. James Hanley is the co-founder of this beautiful uh, movie theater where you do sit in the dark and there's a curtain uh, before the screen is revealed to you. Uh, that's Trinity College's Cine Studio. And Tom Breen, a reporter for the New Haven Independent and the host of Deep Focus on WNHH, a really great uh, show about movies. So, you know, I, I, I hate to have everything be about this. So Vivian, this is probably in some ways for you an exciting year in movies. You are a person of color. You have lived through a couple of years in which people of color have been uh, pretty obviously precluded uh, from Oscar consideration. I, but one of the questions that I have going into Sunday night is how much will the big orange shadow laying over the American Republic uh, sit on the Oscars? You know, is that going to be something that people are being are just going to be talking back to all night, a la Meryl Streep? Uh, well, I don't know whom to which you refer, <laughs> but I will guess that um, I think that regardless of I think whether you think films are just um, art or just um, kind of pop culture. I think that everything, I'm of the belief that pretty much everything has a little bit of a political aspect to it. Um, I don't think that you can have that many actors in a room and a comedian and have there not be jokes. So um, I know that there are some folks who, um, on both ends of the spectrum, who um, are might not watch because they don't, they feel like they don't want to see um, any jokes on either side. Uh, so I think that it'll be interesting to see what the numbers are uh, because we know that the Oscars kind of the the viewing ship has gone the viewership has gone down so it'll be interesting to see if this year if things will change um, James there was a Jamaican phrase that you used as we were emailing is it under heavy manners oh yes I, I was saying the um, people who are appearing on stage have been put under heavy manners that's a Jamaican expression meaning that um, it, somebody has told them don't do it 
Yeah. Meaning that, you know, don't turn this into a political event, which they're terrified of. But I would be really amazed if that doesn't happen this time. I mean, I think that there's a lot of people who Agreed. are going to say things, and I think they need to. And I think that it's something that, um, you know, especially in the light of the past few days, the, uh, the withdrawal of uh, protection for transgender youth in schools, for example, things that are really going to hurt people that... Um, I think that things like that will come up, but of course there are even larger issues too that, that across the spectrum. And so, um, much as they do get these warnings, and they seriously do. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know whether they offer they they, they probably threaten to take their goodie bags away, yeah. um, but um, they certainly warn them that they're going to run the music up. So you'll probably hear an awful lot of music on this broadcast. Uh. <laughs> oh, I, also too, I think the Oscars are just. I mean, they're very self-congratulatory. Like, let's yeah. be honest. You know, um, I think it really is a, a lot of times for people to come up. Like, look at how you know how understanding Hollywood is. Look at how you know open-minded we are. So I think there's you know, there is going to certainly be that like let's pass ourselves on the back and aren't we really good people well, yeah. Tom, regardless Tom there are some moments where we know things could very easily happen that would be kind of on the nose as it were I mean one of them would be if the Iranian director Farhadi wins for the salesman in the best foreign film category he's not going to be there because he can't take the chance of going through customs right so I kind of want to take a circuitous path to answer that question Any and I'm glad that you brought up Farhadi because that was the example I wanted to go to I mean there are a number of ways that this uh, the Oscars could be interpreted as a political moment, and one is by looking at, you know, on the face of it, an Iranian director who would have been precluded from entering the country because of Trump's uh, ban on people from the seven Muslim countries in the Middle East. Um, but also, I, you know, as someone who thinks and writes and loves talking about movies, looking, I think The Salesman is a perfect example of uh, what, you know, the, the orange shadow in the room, in that The Salesman, which is a, kind of a riff on uh, Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman, but about a, a contemporary Iranian production of that, is all about uh, kind of the Willie Loman character's complete inability to understand causality, like how, it, what, how he's lived his life, how that has actually led to his like, pretty terrible situation. And I think that Farhadi's presence in this movie's presence at the Oscars tells us that, that that is something when we think about Trump and just the, the lie after lie after lie that comes from his administration, it's a complete denial of reality and a complete denial of responsibility um, of his actions and in, you know, the toppling of tombstones in a, a Jewish cemetery in St. Louis. I mean, there's, there's like a direct connection that I think a lot of America draws between the hate speech we see in public and then what we see happening elsewhere in the news. And, and I want to say that this is such a perfect venue Cine Studio is for this conversation, not just because it is such a beautiful theater and because we have James here talking with us, but when you co-founded this in 1969, you told me that Cine Studio was a place for the LGBT kids, for the anti-war protesters, for the black kids to come and not just watch movies, but to, to kind of share in their counterculture and the, at a very you know, conservative school at the time, yeah. uh, to really to find a haven for recognizing that um, resistance or, or protest is, you know, is patriotic, is something that we want to encourage in the institutions that we're a part of. Um, and so I think that that, that is what I, that's what I hope to see at the Oscars, that you know, seeing in hidden figures both a story of us, American aspirations as much in American uh, uh, racism and segregation. These women, you know, they did put a man on the moon. They did send a man into orbit. Those are incredible accomplishments. And I think that patriotism comes through in the movies, almost unexpectedly so. Well, and, yeah, yeah, go ahead. 
No, I was going to say, there's also the reassurance of safety amid the threats of violence, which I think that that very thing you're talking about, movies and sort of the refuge sense, the sense that there are people who are alive and thinking and aware and that you're not alone and that you can really be, you, you, you can really find a space where you feel safe. I mean, I've certainly felt that myself uh, very much, uh, uh, that, that sense that you can express yourself and that you can find people who agree with that. And you look to things, oddly enough, like a, a public appearance at the Oscars to reassure that, okay, the whole world hasn't gone mad. Well, and Vivian, I think the other thing about this, as um, Tom is mentioning the salesman, um, another thing that's true about the salesman is it's about Iranian people putting on an Arthur Miller play, and there's a way in which what culture really does is slash through a lot of the nationalistic ties that are being yeah. overemphasized these days. I'm going to mangle all the details of this, but I what was subject within the last few months was listening to, I think, a podcast in which somebody was talking about a production of, I think, Measure for Measure, but it might have been a different Shakespeare play, in, I think, Afghanistan. And, and the, the, the whole reaction was like initially only the men of the town went to see it, and then the next night they came back and they brought all their families, and what they were saying to the people who were putting it on is, well, how could Shakespeare have known all this stuff about Afghanistan? How could he possibly have figured this stuff out? You know? and, and, I mean, that's what culture does. Culture tells us that, oh, no, the things that tear at your heart you know, here in Hartford, Connecticut, would tear at your heart in Zimbabwe or Afghanistan uh, or, or Indonesia. And, and, and I think that's probably, I mean, part of the reason why I think we go to a movie theater or in our houses or whatever, you look for this experience, whether it's reflective of something that um, has happened to you or somebody else. I think we look to um, movies to see life in some ways. Um, but I also think that uh, sometimes we look at movies to see our world reflected back to us. So while some people are saying, well, you know, I look at, um, you know, I might look at a, a hidden figures uh, in, in a certain way, but a, a lot of ways that I think sometimes film is serving as history right now. Um, I think yes, that, I you know, we're taking, um, we're taking stories that should, we should know this already and bringing them to light. Um, I think with movies, um, I think with movies like maybe Moonlight, it's about a life. If you live in a certain place, you might not meet those characters. You might not meet those people. So it's it's trying to connect in a way that you, you can't necessarily do in your real life. That's why you sit in that dark room, because you want to see the world in a different way. You know, Tom, one of the movies that you've alluded to a bunch of times, and I, I think I had a similar reaction to it, but I think also is informative in a different way, is Hell or High Water. Hell or High Water is this contemporary Western by the way, a boy of people who might have been overlooked, Ben Foster gives this incredible performance in Hell or High Water. But you know, if you want to meet the Trump voter, that that's a place to meet it, right? These are these are people who, as you say, have inherited poverty, who have uh, who are under a, a structure of irresolvable debt, for which no system is in place to deal with. And so they start taking matters into their own hands. You know, in the Chris Pine character and the Ben Foster character, these are two brothers, they process all this somewhat differently according to temperament. But if you want to see the kinds of people who might have thought, oh, no, I, I can't get redress through any kind of normal means. I think I'll vote for Donald Trump. You know, there, there they are.
You know, there are, if Hell or High Water is a very, you know, precise regional portrait of West Texas, uh, we also have Manchester by the Sea is one of the best yeah. pictures, which is a very specific regional portrait of, of New England and alcoholism and depression and grief. But I think that what ties these two movies together in my mind is that they also, I mean, through what uh, James and Vivian have been saying about culture as a haven and also as a kind of universalizing influence, is that we recognize, I'm going to say, um, kind of national American tropes. Uh, in, in Hell or High Water, the characters are defined by their willingness to sacrifice everything in their lives to potentially provide a better life for their kids. I mean, what is more like um, American than that sentiment? And we see that that impulse, that idealism, even in, a, in an area of such fatalism, play out to some really tragic consequences. But in the same way that you don't have to be from Massachusetts to understand uh, the, the grappling with, with grief that Casey Affleck's character has in Manchester by the Sea, you don't have to be a, a Trump voter or uh, to even understand a Trump voter to understand what is that motivating impulse for at least these characters and these stories. You know, James, I want to ask one question that's about form. We're going to take a break pretty soon. And I think we're going to let the audience also chime in. We've been maybe, this isn't the kind of show where we run through every category and go, well, I think Denzel's going to win. Uh, but, but he I mean, should. If you have very specific, <laughs> if you want us to do that, we could do that. But, um, you know, just a question about form, which is that you show so many terrific movies uh, here, and you've shown, for example, Fire at Sea, which is one of the nominated documentaries. But one of the other do nominated documentaries, and the one that I think might win, is O.J. Made in America, which was really not necessarily made to be shown on a movie screen. And it's going to be, for a movie exhibitor, it's going to be like, you know, Tom Stoppard's Coast of Utopia, where people have to like book hotel rooms or something, and you know, and come watch it over a series of days. I mean, what do you? Th how do you feel about that? That's that's a documentary that was essentially made to be shown on television. Right. Well, we actually had to deal with this many years ago with Andy Warhol's films, mm. um, which uh, people would we, we we showed several of them, and several of them we did. I don't think we showed Empire State, which was I, th I think just just too long, it was, would have been all day. But uh, people came and went, you know, we showed it, people came and went. It was, it was an experience in itself, a sort of art experience that wasn't a narrative experience per se, but it was really important. In the case of something like uh, OJ, I think that it certainly will be impossible for most theaters to play it because their management is going to say nobody's going to buy food. And so, you know, their, 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 their principal source of income will be dented. So. They, they won't even consider it. So it will probably show a very limited number of art museums. And it, uh, I can see that probably the distributor, too, will immediately push it into other venues, like View on Demand and, and, and various other th things, because the film industry itself is not really equipped to deal with that kind of length. I would like to do it, really. Um, but you know, everything we do here, every decision we make, it also has a risk factor involved. Uh, and we do show things that might not draw a big audience, like Foco Amare, Fire at Sea, which was an incredibly important film, just a really amazing, um, that very few people actually did see. But it was very important to show. But you can only do just so many of those. You have to also show films that draw more people just to survive. And I think uh, it, it, the decision for showing the entire OJ, which I think you would have to do for artistic integrity, however, in, uh, 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 however important it is, it's very difficult for a theater to do. And I think that it's probably going to be in ancillary media that it takes, takes form. I, I, I bet the multiplexes will just, you know, they'll 
build-in intermissions where they go. Well, what they need is time to, to go hire. have the Cato Keelan burger. <laughs> <laughs> they they need to hire the folks who work at Disney who pace the Disney like uh, Frozen. You know, you pace the songs mm -hmm. and you because you know that the, the the younger audience is going to come out and socialize and buy candy every ten or fifteen minutes. Mm -hmm. So they actually pace the film like that. I mean, watch it. You'll see it's it's done like that because it's a commercial product. All right, I think we should we take our break? We should take our break, yes. Uh, first of all, I want to say that my very, very dedicated staff has been through, as you might say, hell or high water to get the show on the air. <laughs> and they've done a great job. Jonathan McNichol, Betsy Kaplan, nerves of steel. They've got nerves of steel, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Kion Wolf back on the board, and Gina Amatruda, somehow or other, got us through all this. We're going to come back. We're going to ask the audience what they want us to talk about after the proverbial this. Who cares what picture you see? And the Oscar goes to Jonathan McNichol, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kion Wolf, for producing this show. Awards in this category were presented earlier at the Staken Bowl in Sherman Oaks. Special thanks to Sean Donnelly and Kathy Andrews at Trinity College, and of course, James Hanley at Cine Studio. Alan Yu and Sir Ray Hardman appeared in the intro, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Dev Patel. Keep up with news of the show on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. On Monday, we'll break down news of the weekend on The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. Yes, indeed. So um, it really has been a lot of fun doing the show here at Trinity Cine Studio. And we are going to go out to the audience, as promised, in a second. But one thing, I was trying to remember if there was something that we really needed to talk about that we hadn't really thrashed through. And, and probably this, the most contested and interestingly contested uh, category, Vivian is, in fact, Best Actor, where for a long time, Casey... Affleck appeared to have a long lead for his performance in Manchester by the Sea, particularly because a lot of the early awards are given out by critics, the like New York uh, Critics Circle Awards, stuff like that. And critics love this performance. But of course, Casey's got some baggage in the area of sexual Just harassment. Yeah, and then Denzel Washington, for a bunch of different reasons, has come on strong. So that this is actually, this might be the one nail-biter of a category on Sunday night. I'm rooting for Denzel because that's the rule. When Denzel is nominated for something, you only root for Denzel. Um, I would agree with you that, that you're probably right that Casey did get a lot of the critics, uh, the critic choice kind of awards, but um, I, I refuse to live in a world where Casey Affleck is considered a better actor than Denzel Washington. No <laughs> offense, I'm sorry, I know some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy, but uh, I stand by that statement. Well, I refuse to live in a world where Donald Trump is president. What good did that do? <laughs> yeah. Refusing to live in the world turns out not to work. I can <laughs> tell you that. I'm not even going to touch that comment. <laughs> so I don't know, James, what's your uh, take on all this? Well, I think personally, uh, you know, I mean, I thought that Denzel's performance was amazing at the time of his career. He is where he's willing to take on a character who is really rough around the edges and abusive and um, he actually physically looks tired and you know he's, he really bought into that role and I like that role for that I it, you know that that um, <clears throat> there are so many instances of people who look inauthentic in that part because they spent two hours in the makeup room you know trying to make them yeah we want you to look like a bum but not too bad you know and so he really seems to have bought into that um, and I also do agree with the thing about, uh, you know, it, Casey Affleck's performance is a kind of theatrical high-water mark that is a, does please critics. 
Um, but I, I'm not sure. It, it's a, I like the film very much, but I'm not sure that um, he would do it. As to the effect of the um, sexual harassment charges, it's really hard to know. Um, it, it's, it's very, uh, you know, there's a great deal of money is spent on sort of uh, on, on whitewashing the no pun intended, that, that the, these things, you know, public relations firms get people placed on shows and they have discussions and stuff like that. And um, the interesting thing about Sean Parker and Birth of a Nation is that he didn't do that and Fox didn't pay for it to be done kind of thing. And so he never, uh, I mean, for whatever you can criticize about him, and I think that he, he, he made huge mistakes, um, the industry is always interested in how people present it, especially at something like the Oscars. And I sort of think that they wouldn't spend, they, they, they would spend a certain amount of time on Casey Affleck, but not a lot. So, I, well, and I think Denzel is, is, is due to be recognized for that kind of performance. Well, well I think it's also worth noting that you, you, we know what Casey's last name is, and there has been yes, yeah. um, a lot of discussion within Hollywood that his brother and his brother's BFF have basically said, you will not discuss that topic. And yeah. if you discuss that topic with him, you will not have access to me. Yeah. So His brother know. is Batman. Yes. So <laughs> yes. That would, um, yes. And yeah, I mean, uh, the other thing about Denzel Washington is, I mean, first of all, he's been able, you know, Tom, you don't have to change a lot of votes to win these Oscars. It's a pretty small group of people. You can go meet a lot of them. And, and Denzel Washington has done that. Casey Affleck, who uh, I've been in the same room with Casey Affleck. He does not have a lot of personal charisma. He's not a guy you don't want to go over to his table and you know start talking to him. Whereas Denzel Washington is very much a member of the club at this point. That may help him a bit. I I want to I totally agree with what James and Vivian have said, but I want to dwell for a second on just how how great both of these performances are yeah. and how they again I talk about Moonlight and La La Land existing at opposite ends of a spectrum. Here we have two completely different approaches to acting. Denzel creating a character, uh, creating worlds out of words. Right, he is this larger than life presence uh, who it almost doesn't matter whether what he's saying is true or not. You're so compelled by his presence, his verbal and physical presence there. And Casey Affleck in Manchester by the Sea, he communicates so much more through the back of his body mm -hmm. uh, than he almost does to the front. The, the scene that sticks with me, if anyone's seen Manchester, is when right after the tragedy has occurred and he's watching his wife be taken away in an ambulance, we just see his, his back looking out at the ambulance going away. That one image is kind of the accomplishment of Casey, Fla Casey Affleck's acting. That. And that's, that's something special. All right, we've got about five minutes left here, according to Betsy Kaplan. we got a question right over here. Hi, I'm Susan Garvey, and I'm a student here at Trinity, and maybe the experts can help me with a course I'm taking here right now on the documentary. My pick is 13th, which I saw last night at Trinfo Cafe, because, and I should have seen it in a darkened theater rather than a well-lit lounge, because I was in tears, especially with the when they did the cross shots with the white uh, crowd angrily beating up a man during the civil rights era, and the angry crowds beating up black people at the Trump rally. What's your guys? Tom is dying to talk about 13th. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when I was going through my own kind of favorite movies or my top movies of the year, it was a tie between O.J. Made in America, Wiener, the documentary about the disgraced New York politician Anthony Wiener, and 13th. And I think they tell us a phenomenal about, amount about this current political moment. And zeroing in on 13th in particular, I mean, here we have a real uh, just happy coinciding of an incredibly compelling and important subject matter with a filmmaker who knows how to make the movie. Ava DuVernay, probably best known for Selma and who is also making uh, the um, Wrinkle in Time series. So she is a filmmaker who is 
is, is about to work with a lot bigger of a budget. She knows how to shoot people in compelling ways. This isn't just a talking head documentary. When you have Angela Davis in this like beautiful cavernous cathedral talking about the history of mass incarceration, when you have Michelle Alexander, Michelle Alexander presenting it as almost like a prophet of this, um, again, visually, Ava DuVernay is able to accomplish so much. And we're not even talking about the archival material she picks through. So yeah, 13th is just an incredible achievement. I just, just, a few, just a few minutes left here. I, I want to just get to one more question, or Tom won't be allowed to answer this question. Hello to all of you. Annette Landry from Manchester with a question. Why did La La Land get so many nominations and Hidden Figures get so few? Well, I, I, I would say that that is going back to the sort of insider uh, that, that, that I think that Damien Chazelle made a very successful film that I liked, but I think it also, um, it, it, it really does push some buttons within the industry. And I think that Hidden Figures is almost something that it succeeded in spite of that, that structure. Um, I don't think that the studio or the studios or the publicists knew what they had and they didn't understand. I can just imagine at some of the investor meetings, you know, what? You know, black mathematicians. Right. Vivian, Women, did Vivian, you say? Vivian, you, were, you were saying that too. The elevator pitch yeah. doesn't really sound that great, right? No. It's like, first of all, there were black people in NASA. Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> can we can we run the number? You know, so I, I'm, and I, I, I say that kidding, but, um, you know, slightly serious. I, I think movies like, to your point about why La La, La, La Land feels good. And, it, and there's nothing wrong with that. Let's just. Let's be honest, it's okay to go to a movie and smile and laugh and enjoy and have a good time. And that sticks with people. It's harder to sit with material where you're being faced with a part of American history people don't want to face. You don't want to go back to um, you know, segregation and these three women who had to do what, who did this tremendous thing and never got acknowledged for it. It's a, it's a harder road. Um, and so you go with what makes you happy a lot of times, um, not because you're a bad person, but you just want to feel happy. All right. I'm not, I'm not allowed to ask any more questions. We're running out of time here. I do want to say that about 20 years ago, uh, my friend Peter Shapiro and I came to James and we said we'd like to have an Oscar party here at Trinity Cine Studio. We would like to, there was no AIDS organization in Connecticut. We just wanted to give the money to the three shelters that were accepting AIDS patients at that time. Uh, since then, the party has hung around. It's grown. It's moved to other locations. It's at the Spotlight uh, Theaters in Hartford this Sunday night. You can still go on the AIDS Connecticut website and get, picture, uh, get uh, tickets. Uh, we call it the red carpet experience and it's uh, you can watch the Oscars on the screen you can hang around outside and schmooze with Vivian and Carolyn Payne and Kion Wolf and lots of other people and there's good food and all, all kinds of other uh, and there's like a red carpet and one of those what do they call the backdrops where you have your picture taken and it says some brand name or something I don't know what that's called but anyway you can do all that and so think about doing that if you're listening to this we'd love to have you there and it does support a very important cause so thanks to everybody big hand for our panel here from our audience now being estimated by Sean Spicer at 18,000 people are here. Thank you so much. Factor, he'd make a monkey look good. Within a half an hour, you'll look like